Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow, And I'm Jesse Spur. Welcome to another episode of Five Things. And today, I'm actually really excited to say that we are joined by Dr. Mia McLanders, who is the Manager of Research at Clinical Skills Development Service here at Metro North. And today, we're going to talk all things human factors. Welcome, Mia. Thank you, Liz. I'm really excited about this and I'll have to constrain myself from nerding out too much and remember who our audience is and it's not me necessarily. <laughs> um, we'd love to hear your background story. How did you get to doing what you do now? Well, I started out uh, doing an undergraduate degree in psychology and then I went into my honours year and in my honours year I did a project around redesigning a medication chart and what I found in that process was that the way that we designed and laid out the chart really made a difference to patient safety. And it just led you on this crazy journey, I guess. It did. And so I was kind of hooked at that point and I went into my PhD, which was based at the Mater Hospital, and I followed around neonatal resuscitation teams for about four years and got to know them quite intimately and understand what they do and how they do it. And it's something that we don't do a lot in healthcare is get that outside view. Like you think about every other high-performing industry and there's coaches that are objectively just observing um, performance and making suggestions about it. We don't do that much in healthcare. That's such a great point, Jesse, because I think it is, you know, some people see it as a liability to not be clinically trained, but I actually think it's a bit of a superpower because you come in and you don't carry the same assumptions that other people have and you don't have the idea of that's how things are done because we've always done them that way or we do it that way because, you know, these are the, historically, this is what's happened. And so you get to be really annoying, ask a lot of questions and challenge the status quo. I love that. I'm, I'm already, I'm nerding out too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. All right. So your number one is already fascinating to me and that is human factors and ergonomics the origin story. So tell me, what, what does that mean? So human factors and ergonomics. So let me start first. The word ergonomics, because human factors is kind of intuitive, but ergonomics is comes from the Greek word of ergon, which is work, and nomos, which is natural law. So it's the natural law of work and how we work. And so human factors and ergonomics really describes the complex interaction between the elements of the system. And the work system contains the, the who, so that's our people, individuals, and teams. The what, so the tasks, procedures, and processes. The how of how we do things, so that's our tools and our equipment, how we get our jobs done. And the where, so this is like the clinical environment, but it also can extend to the broader sort of socio-political environment. So that might be things like, you know, where we're getting pre political pressures around things, um, you know, nurse-patient ratios, those kinds of things. Yeah. Okay. And so I guess, you know, that, that's a lot of kind of big words, but it's kind of like we come to work every day. If I'm a junior nurse, I'm in the wards 
And some of this stuff, we're just doing it. We're not thinking about it. We're not, we're like, I'm a nurse. I have got four patients. These are the things that I have to get done today. Whereas is what you're saying is human factors and ergonomics is kind of the process of stopping, reflecting, having conscious awareness of how systems drive us to do and behave and communicate in certain ways um, that we do really unconscious. Is it kind of bringing it to the conscious? Yeah, it really is. And that's a theme that will come through quite a bit today is about making that implicit knowledge and implicit sort of processes explicit. And I think, Liz, it might be helpful to know a little bit about the origins of human factors. So kind of before, I think the earliest example came from Hippocrates um, around the 5th century BC and Hippocrates um, described how surgeons should, should lay out their tools and their equipment for the maximum amount of safety and efficiency during surgery. And it sort of um, really kind of gained momentum during the war where there was a lot of like the boom in aviation and there was a lot of interest during the Industrial Revolution too, which is kind of happening around the same time where we had human beings interaction interacting with machines in a way that we hadn't seen before. And, you know, big complex machines like aircraft where people, you know, it's safety critical kind of work that they were doing. And, you know, that's where they we, we got the first G-suit from, from a human factors work in, in aviation. And um, there was an issue in the during the war with um, the Boeing B-17, the flying fortresses where they kept having crash landings of those particular planes and they brought in a psychologist who was human factors kind of expert and he took a look at the landing gear and the, the levers for the landing gear and the levers for the, the flaps were actually side by side and they were identical levers. And so all he did was put a wheel where the lever for the landing gear was <laughs> and a flap, like a little rectangle on top of the, the lever for the flaps. And that metaphorical mapping is what we call it. Um, it completely stopped all the crash landings of that airplane. It, that's so fascinating. I, I remember once hearing um, a lot about fishermen taking lots of risk uh, to get fish in when storms were coming and that boats were constantly getting turned over and they did all this warning systems and they, you know, put out alerts and um, tried to find people and the fishermen kept taking the risk and then they brought in a human factors person and they made everyone who was a fisherman have a picture of their family on their coffee mug and people came home. Oh, that's extraordinary. Yeah. I think it, it's really interesting, two examples, because I've heard it grossly over-reduced, but thinking of human factors as being factors of humans mm. and factors affecting humans. And really the practice is that convergence between the two, isn't it? And the example you give, Liz, is essentially factors of humans, is that that's an, that emotional drive and motivation and kind of the subconscious drivers of behavior, whereas your example was factors affecting humans, which mm. was actually environmental design nudging people towards doing, I guess, the desirable action or the safest layout. Yeah, I agree. It's, you know, from all of those studies around the war and, and other similar ones, it became really evident that you can't just train and supervise for human performance. You really have to design for it. And it is about shaping and building a system that supports the behavior that you want. Okay, so an exciting start to this podcast with some really interesting stories already. So your number two is why human factors is actually a terrible name. 
It really is. And Jesse kind of touched on this before. And I think hum- people think of human factors the way I hear people using it. Sometimes it's like it's a euphemism for human error, like the human factors got in the way or human factors caused that, that, that problem. And really bringing it about how inherently flawed human beings are. And I also hear it being described as non-technical skills or even my personal favourite, soft skills, which, oh, you know. I can't stand yeah. that. <laughs> um, but from what we've covered already, we understand that it's not about that. It's about the elements in the work system and designing for those things. Human factors is really design, is has been informed and built by engineers and psychologists um, and and industrial designers. And I come to human factors through my lens of cognitive psychology. So that just means that I'm drawn to the kinds of things like um, how we process information, how we make clinical judgments and decision-making and how we can predict and shape behavior in the clinical environment. And I think part of the reason that the misconception persists is because of the traditional incident analysis where often you know, the findings of um, incident analysis come out that there's been a breakdown in communication and a breakdown in teamwork. They, they seem to be the common ones. We know from the literature that actually the two most common recommendations from uh, incident analyses are to re-educate people and to write a policy. <laughs> yeah, right. But we also know that from the literature, from studies, that these are the weakest recommendations and they have the lowest pro- probability of reducing risk as well. Yeah, so much of it's based in that kind of regressive model of looking at safety and it's where the rub for me occasionally comes across where there's this focus on transposing um, commercial airline concepts of safety into healthcare. We have to take off. The, the plane can be on fire in healthcare and we have to take off every day. We don't get to say no. So there's that engineering-based model of safety really falls down. And what... What happens with that is we see, I think you the point made beautifully about educate the people more, educate the people more, train the teams more. We see the people as the object for improvement rather than the agents of improvement. It's so deeply problematic, Jesse, and it, it's also unfortunate that the aviation model has drifted into healthcare because I see very little parallel really yeah. between you know a cockpit and and a complex you know dynamic, highly variable uh, healthcare environment. Like there is so much variability in our environment. There's, you know, the skill mix of the team and, you know, even the teams themselves, they they are dynamically forming and reforming. And, you know, whereas aircraft teams are static, like there's a, a single cockpit crew and they stay that way and they have a planned procedure and wouldn't that be nice? And I think that's how, you know, human factors with that aviation kind of CRM type thing has come into into healthcare, maybe not too damaging in a in a surgical context, perioperative setting, but within the rest of healthcare, I think it's it's quite unhelpful to be honest. I think if it's used as a gateway drug into greater exploration of human factors and design and behavioral economics and all of the other things, ergonomics, environmental design, human-centered design. If it's a gateway into that sort of stuff, that's great. But I've seen it too often be the entire repertoire of someone's inverted commas, human factors and team science knowledge who's actually doing the responses to these root cause analysis. They're doing the team training and talking about CRM. And that's why we're just doomed to this loop. Can I just ask, 
Can you explain what CRM is in case people that's not familiar? Yeah, so crew resource management principles that have been, I guess, readopted and rebranded to crisis resource management principles. Um, there's, and essentially, it's around some of those common vernaculars around use of uh, effective communication, which has been further kind of, uh, I guess, reduced to being closed loop. Yeah, and even more reduced in a lot of practices to being readback. Mm. Um, which, yeah, there, there's a lot of concepts around that. So having a team leader, being a an effective team member, um, having situational awareness. So it's all very domain level mm. and um, none of it's bad. Yeah. But I guess it. my, my concern is that that's where we have stopped, stopped. in a, yeah. lot of, a lot of places. Yeah. Instead of looking at what's the role of the system, the design, the way we've got a room set up, you know, the politics, the dynamics of power. Or, yeah. I think the irony too, Jesse, is that if you see a really high functioning team, very often there's minimal communication happening at all. And so that sort of prescriptive communicate more. And, and I think that's where we kind of lose that connection between what an effective team really looks like compared to, you know, and, and it's that sort of default to standardization and and I think there's a place for policy, procedure, standardization, that kind of thing. But I think what's really important is to understand and, and a, embrace the fact that it's, you know, it is a complex adaptive system. And if I can just kind of, we talk about that a lot, but I don't know that people like, we mean complex in the sense that there's a lot of, you know, interactive elements within the system and it's adaptive in the sense that it's self-organizing. So there's so much that goes well in healthcare. If you think about the hundreds of thousands of clinician-patient encounters that happen in a day and, you know, realistically, statistically, the adverse events are such a small proportion of those. When we focus on those adverse events and we design our improvement or our, you know, um, try and make our healthcare system just by focusing on those particular events, we miss so much of the richness of how much our teams are able to be adapting and recovering and they're actually the safety that's embedded in a system that that is imperfect and so i think we we have so much to learn from those those positive events and clinicians working overtime to to adapt and recover from imperfect systems i'd really love to see them not have to work so hard to do that well, i think i think everyone would join you on that desire. And again, you know, that's not because they're not resilient. That's one of the terms that I really struggle with. Our human beings are extremely resilient, but our systems are flawed. And you can't put someone in repeatedly for 12, 14, 16 hour days and expect them to still be functioning at a very high concentrated focus level. I kind of saw this with the neonatal resuscitation teams, Liz, when I was brought in to do more team training with them and I spent a good year actually following them around and observing them and interviewing them and talking to them and the challenges that they had were actually system-based. So it was things like we don't actually have anywhere to do a UVC setup, which is a sterile procedure that they do. And so as a consequence, one of the you know handful of interventions that I did with them was we actually built a shelf and we clamped it onto the side of the, the resuscitation trolley so it gave them a dedicated space to do their UVC setup, but it also gave them somewhere they can um, draw up drugs and, and it was a dedicated space that they could sort of rotate it around and be away from the chaos of the resuscitation. 
So it's a practical sort of system-based solution Mm. that helps support them in the job that they're already doing very, very well. And it's really easy in hindsight to just go, oh, yeah, but that's pretty obvious, wasn't it? Yeah. But the amount of stuff that we have a tolerance for, um, we're so, so, I guess, used to having to work around our environment and work around shortcomings and adapt and then expect still there to be no performance variability in how how the outcomes come out of those same those events. There's a concept that I love called clinical choreography and it's about how people move together in the constraints of a clinical environment. In neonatal resuscitation, that's particularly, you know, they tend to do that in very, very small rooms and you've got very big adults. And, you know, if it's an advanced resuscitation, you can have sort of six to 10 people in in that room around a tiny little cot. And what I, I, I've also seen some research that come out of, came out of uh, Clemson University and the Medical University of South Carolina, where they were looking at procedural um, flow interruptions during surgeries. And they they found that there were around 90 interruptions during surgeries and over half of those were relating to the room layout, the physical layout of the space. And it was things like, you know, the surgeon couldn't actually see um, important things like patient monitoring um, because equipment was blocking their view or there was one example that they gave where the entire team had to stop at a critical point in the surgery because a piece of equipment that they needed was in a cupboard behind a piece of equipment. Um, and so I think that stuff, again, it seems really obvious, but it's it's very, very common that our, our physical environments aren't designed to maximise process flow. Hmm. All right. So number three is expect the unexpected, dealing with variability. So as we were saying before, some of the traditional safety paradigms have a real thing against variability and we like to try and constrain it and control it and we introduce standardization and automation and rules and policies and from that paradigm any variation is seen as being highly highly dangerous but variability is inherent in a complex adaptive system like healthcare and we have to be careful when we do things like automation forcing functions like it can be good like if you think about um the early versions, early iterations of the ATMs where you go get your cash out of the wall, they had a real problem with people leaving their bank cards in the machines. And so what they did was they did what we often kind of try and do in healthcare. They, they tried to educate people and they, they put flashing lights up and they put, you know, notices on the screen to make sure you took it. They even had the part where you put your card flashing, you know, so you're remembering to take that card, but it, it was not fixing the problem. So ultimately what they did was that they made it a forcing function that you had to take your bank card before you could actually retract your cash from the machine. And so it does work to do forcing functions. It's like extremely effective and it's tempting to do that everywhere, but it can really backfire. That's the problem. And it's particularly problematic when it doesn't make sense to people. So if you think about Liz, when you're walking down the footpath and you, you're walking around the block and you've got footpaths that the council have bought at 90 degree angles, who walks that way? Right. Mm-hmm. So we cut the corner because it's more efficient to do so. And we call that desire paths. And in user-centered design, we make sure that we are designing things to support the behavior that people will do rather than trying to constrain and shape that behavior in a way that isn't natural to them. So one of the examples for that is uh, Ohio State University. They had a brand new campus and they had a grassy courtyard. And rather than pouring the the concrete paths, they allowed the students to actually create those desire paths. 
And once the pathways were embedded, they actually poured the paths afterwards. See, and that this is what's so interesting and kind of frustrating. It's so intuitive once you know it, <laughs> but prior to getting there, it's baffling. Yep. And I guess that's what, what a lot of human factors is about, isn't it? It's about bringing to the conscious things that we are doing auto, on automatic pilot or things that we do just because that's what to, someone told us to do and so we just keep doing it the same way even though we might kind of think this is a bit dumb. People know though. I've talked mm. to, you know, when I'm in clinical environments immersing in different areas, the the nursing staff, the the doctors, like they know what doesn't make sense and they have to go along with it anyway. Look, and I think it it is one of the dark sides of standardization. I'm not against standardization per se. I think it's very important for for safety, you know, having procedures, but we we know that you can follow a policy or a procedure to the letter and things can still go wrong. So I like to think that they're necessary, but not sufficient for safety. Mm. They can inhibit excellence as well. And, and I think that's one of the things that you alluded to briefly before is we don't look at why things go well and sometimes why things go well when they shouldn't have gone well. Um, and because I'd say that's moments of human or clinician or team excellence that make moments that shouldn't have been salvageable have a good outcome and that we talk about performance variability as a negative thing rather than as actually a, a savior in some situations i really like this kind of again I, I like pithy sort of phrases and and sound bites but um the idea of policies procedures guidelines that standardization work as being should be a scaffold rather than a cage and we do see a lot of resistance to standardization and i think where that comes from is that fundamental mismatch between work as it's actually done versus work as we're prescribing it to be done. And there was a great example of this recently that I came across. We have a program that we're just rolling out at uh, CSDS with water immersion during labour and birth. We're reviewing policy and guidelines across the state um, to understand what the barriers were to people, to consumers accessing water immersion during labour and birth. And what was interesting was we were looking at a, a, a local policy at a facility and it and it directed the clinician to go reference the, the national guidelines. And when we went to the national guidelines, they referenced back to the local policy. Yeah. So it's actually impossible to follow procedures in that case. It's a flowchart trap. <laughs> <laughs> You're in a loop. Yeah. So your number four is why humans are our greatest asset in imperfect systems. It's so true, Liz. And it's what Jesse was saying earlier that you know, our clinicians are often the thing that saves, you know, where there's a, a process in play and there's gaps or failures in a system. It's the clinicians that adapt and recover and make that go well. And they do it so very often. And there's a great um, story that I was thinking about from Gary Klein and he interviewed firefighters. And there was a story that he told of this fire chief who went into a house fire of this single story dwelling. The house the the kitchen was at the back of the house and kitchen fires are probably one of the more common types of fires that you have so the fire chief took his team into the house and they were targeting this fire at the back of the house and but it was it wasn't quite responding in the way that they expected it to you know they were hitting it with the hoses and they turned the water off and it wasn't really abating that fire so the fire chief called his team back into the, the living room to kind of reevaluate and reassess their choices and 
there was something that just kind of a feeling that came over him and he said, I've got to get my team out. And he got his team out of that house and within seconds, the floor where they'd just been standing collapsed underneath them. What they didn't realise was that the fire was actually in the basement underneath. They didn't realise the house had a basement and the fire was underneath them. And when they asked the fire chief afterwards, how did you know to get the team out of there? He said, you know, I don't know, it must have been sort of ESP or some kind of, you know, secret message that came through to me because I just don't know how I knew, but I just knew I had to get them out of there. Now, there's a critical decision-making interview technique that we use in human factors. And when they actually slowed down his thinking and walked him through the process, there were two important things about that fire. The first one was that it was much hotter than what you'd expect for a kitchen fire. And the second one was that it was too quiet. And so those micro cues in that environment, he was able to read those because of his extensive knowledge and expertise in fighting fires. And I think we see that in healthcare all of the time, right? It's a great analogy because we're making decisions with highly variable environments and there's that gut feel that comes through and we just, we just know that it's, something's not right with a patient. And nurse concern is a predictor of clinical deterioration. We know that. And it's that knowledge of the patient plus plus their experience. And there's been some great work from Dow and colleagues at the Netherlands who developed a tool to actually measure that uh, nurse concern. And they were validating this tool in the clinical context and found that it was reliably able able to predict um, unplanned ICU admissions and also unexpected mortality. So that's why we have that phrase in the QADS, our patient monitoring system that says, if you're worried about the patient, so that clinician concern um, criteria that allows us to escalate to an emergency call, that's there to support people with their experience and to support that intuition and knowledge. And it's funny because I I hate to be all feminist, but at the moment I'm reading a book called Wifedom and it's really put me back to some of that feminist constructs, is that I think some of it is diminished too because it's the nurse, you know, like, and the nurses, I think, like many other professions, struggle to find an actual language of, of clarity to describe how they know something and so they revert to intuition. And it, it's not intuition. It's years and years of practice wisdom of seeing that experience when it goes well, when it doesn't go well, trying different variables, uh, what works, what doesn't work. And it's, it's stored somewhere in your mind. And I think it gets diminished or kind of looked over or rubbished or, and so people doubt themselves. But this is why it's so important to understand, I think, about human factors, all the elements of it, so that people can look at things from a different perspective or viewpoint that might challenge their insecurities or also reinforce their actual knowledge. My brain's been wrestling with the firefighter example. And the thing that really stood out to me from that was that this expert that's made a very critical decision in a way that we'd say is intuitive um, by feel, by gut, yet on debriefing through, in this case, it was a structured interview because it was part of a research project, but essentially it was a guided and structured debrief to actually tease those implicit decisions out to being explicit. I couldn't help but kind of feel something as we were talking about that. And I thought that is a big gap in our clinical practice. And that's one of those areas where I think we think about debriefing. Um, both formal and informal, but having some way of 
bringing those implicit decisions out that really mattered into being something is that is explicit and by that then hopefully something that can be reproduced so it's how to reproduce those moments of excellence which again if we're only looking at the failures we totally miss that so we deconstruct and debrief the failures but we don't look at the mundane or the perceivedly mundane which is comprised with lots of excellent decisions so number 5 is how do we use human factors principles to improve our work areas. What, what can we actually do with all of this? I think we go back to what we know about human factors, that it's the complex interaction of the system elements. So we start off with the who. So this is our, our individual clinicians and our teams and they're working together. And I think what we can do better is look at what the teams actually need to do their job well. And the answer is not always training. Like I'm a big fan of training, but if we are doing training, then it should really be relevant to what the team and, and what the individual needs. A great example of this is actually my senior research fellow, Dr. Kirsty McLeod. She's done some great work around surgical skills uh, training. And so we know, you know, the obvious things about surgical skills training. So there's, you know, perceptual skills, there's cognitive skills, there's motor skills, um, so manual dexterity and things like that. But in Kirsty's research, it's actually quite groundbreaking. Because she was observing these uh, participants doing this laparoscopic skills t- task and she, she could see that some of them were getting kind of stuck on this one strategy of trying to achieve this task and they'd get fixated on it and stuck on it and, and, and get more and more sort of stressed and, and distressed about not being able to complete the task. But she also noticed some of them were able to sort of stop at that point, reevaluate and try a different strategy. Now, the psychological construct for that is called f- psychological flexibility. And so that when, when she did the analyses of her, of her study, she actually found that, that that psychological construct of psychological flexibility, we can measure that reliably. And what she found was that that was the greatest predictor of their surgical skills performance over and above all of the other variables combined. So it was more important than manual dexterity, cognitive, perceptual, all of those other skills combined psychological flexibility was the most important thing. So that's the who. Can you explain what's the what? Well, the what is the task or the procedure or the process that we're trying to do. And a great example of this is my PhD student, Dr. And, uh, Jasmine Antoine. She's a, a neonatologist and she's looking at uh, increasing the uptake of um, intubation of neonates using video laryngoscopes. And a lot of the more experienced clinicians actually prefer the traditional direct method of intubation. And so we brought those um, people into a lab and we got them to use the video laryngoscopes and we got them to think aloud and, and talk us through what their experience and their processes was as they were intubating a patient using um, the VLs. And so what we found was that there, there is a very big difference in you know, where your, your attentional demands are so that you know, where, where we're looking at the patient and where we're looking at the screen of, of the video versus looking at the vital signs monitoring. And so we learned a lot from that, that task analysis through the, ta- the, the think aloud technique. So I think sometimes we do things and it's that kind of unconscious competence that we have where we're, we're just running through processes and procedures and we, we do it very well and we don't understand how. And it can be very useful to break those tasks down into their component parts to understand them better and improve them. 
again, something we don't do in health. Like my background before uh, nursing was, and I've said this a few times, so the listeners will probably get, oh, he's talking about exercise science again. Um, but thinking about procedural skills even, we don't do discrete breakdowns of procedural skills and let alone when we're adding in perceptual and psychological skills all around those those procedural skills context. So reducing those tasks down and, and into their component pieces is really, really important, really interesting, yeah. So what's the how? The how? Well, I think the best example of this is, again, the same body of research that uh, Jasmine's doing is um, we actually did a usability study on the video laryngoscope, the devices themselves this time. And what was really interesting is when we brought the neonatologists into the lab, most of them had already decided which devices they loved and which devices they hated, but even before they'd touched them. I should say most, but not all, because the ones who had psychological flexibility obviously stayed very open to what device. But what was interesting is that the devices that they um, preference, that they wanted to try first, um, there was one device that pinched three of our five people, um, pinched their, their hand. And, and uh, you know, there were other devices that they had a real difficulty trying to visualize the vocal cords with. And so at the end of the day, what we found was that the devices that they thought they would prefer, they didn't prefer. And the ones they thought they would hate, they actually, they did find very useful and I think it is a great example too to think about the variability that we have in in medical devices and and how they actually are. Sometimes they're so different. They're like you know the difference between driving you know a Fiat five hundred compared to a you know a big SUV vehicle. You know um, the the difference in in that experience can be very confronting and very difficult for people to adapt to. I've heard so many stories about this kind of thing. People where devices have been discontinued and they're sort of, there was one example I heard just last month actually of a nurse who prides herself on um, difficult venous access and the device that she was using was discontinued by the hospital and so she's been bringing in her own devices to use from home so she's been procuring them and and bringing in BYO, you know, medical device. So um, it sounds kind of outrageous and extreme, but honestly, I hear it all the time. People get so fixed on, you know, I have to use that particular brand of, of equipment, otherwise I can't do my job. We have a solution for that though, and there's a concept called contextual interference, which is a strategy for learning that we use that has been used really widely outside of healthcare, but we haven't actually trialed it within healthcare. And with contextual interference, it's a little bit counterintuitive. So what we do is interrupt or introduce a lot of variability when you're learning a new skill. So we'll give you all kinds of different devices to use. And it's not very comfortable. And actually in the first instant, it it does slow down the, the skill acquisition. But what it does do is that once you've acquired the skill, you've got a really robust, resilient, transferable skill set that you can apply to lots of different situations. I often liken it to when you're learning to drive a car. And if you've only ever been in the driving instructor's car, and then suddenly, you know, you get into a a big four-wheel drive or, you know, something completely different or even, you know, more extreme if you go to go internationally and you have to drive on the opposite side of the road, suddenly you don't remember how to drive. You're sort of consumed with trying to navigate the actual equipment and the 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 how to do the the task. And so Jasmine's research that I mentioned earlier, part of her work is to kind of demonstrate that we can use contextual interference, even though it's counterintuitive, that there are real benefits for using that in our healthcare training. It's kind of about safety, isn't it? Because if I learn how to do a task in health one way, and I believe it's the only way, in an emergency, if that particular trolley, if that particular instrument, if that 
isn't there. Sometimes people spend the whole time looking for that rather than trying to find another way to keep the patient safe or to, you know, that we get stuck. Mm. We ran an emergency simulation at Clinical Skills Development Service maybe six months ago and it was I was just happened to be watching this through the control room and there was one participant who was, uh, and this was like a, a crisis situation, and there was one participant who spent, I reckon, two, two and a half minutes looking for a pen. So I think it can really disrupt people's thinking processes. It's almost like it creates a log jam and you just kind of grind to a halt and can't think through. And And that interference, I've heard you know, stories where people have had to deliver babies, um, you know, in a car park, for example, and like, I could, you know, I couldn't intubate that patient. I don't know why I couldn't intubate, intubate that patient. So because the contextual interference was so great, you were so outside of your usual, you know, that, that skill is so context dependent um, that you interrupt the context and you interrupt the skill. There's a couple of things that just really jumped into my head with that stuff. And, and one is, I think we even go the other way, and there can be a negative training effect in a lot of simulation because we allow time compression. So we allow things to happen quicker and more smoothly in sims because people have done sims as participants now. And so the scenario doesn't have those inbuilt contextual interference that you actually even get in real clinical practice in your normal workplace. Um, We often don't train in our actual clinical workplace as teams. Um, And uh, the other thought that really picked up there is we get very dependent on the distributed cognition that gets put into equipment like resus carts, like our environment. And we don't realize that until we're taking out out of that environment, how much our environment is allowed to shape our performance. I'm so excited that you brought up distributed cognition. I didn't think I would be allowed to talk about it. I thought I would lose friends if I did. Um, But it's so true, Jesse, like having, like it's, it's actually literally true that our, our physical environment, our tools are part of our thinking. Um, and as you say, it's that, that shared um, distributed cognition. It, it supports that thinking. You change one of those elements within your usual environment and it, and it interrupts your thinking. So I guess practicing for that is important. So intentionally practicing um, using different equipment and introducing those sort of things. Definitely. Okay. So finally, we're up to the where. So the environment, as I've said before, really shapes behavior and and it can support or constrain behavior in negative ways, depending on how well it's designed. And I actually went to the children's hospital last month. Um, so they they down tools for the day. I mean, obviously taking care of patients, but at the same time, a lot of, there was so much investment from the team to get in and improve their physical layout of their ED because they wanted to, they, they could appreciate and understand that, you know, in order to to do their work well, that the physical environment was very, very important to that. Um, and so the flow of the ED uh, is something that we didn't get to do much. And I think it kind of highlights the importance of, you know, I've gone through these sequentially and individually, but you can't do this in isolation. It is a complex interaction between all of these different, in, you know, factors of um, the work system. And so there were things about that ED, there were, there were physical spaces that we couldn't redesign because they were so dependent on the process and procedure that was going with them that necessarily wasn't um, put in, in, in a way that made sense. You know, it, it gets too big sometimes. And I think that is the risk with human factors is that, you know, designing an entire system. I spent four years with the neonatal resuscitation teams and I made some headway with some interventions, um, but 
it's such a, an enormous volume of work to change a work system. It can be a little bit overwhelming sometimes, but it doesn't mean that small improvements don't matter. They absolutely do. And I think the most important thing is to remember to redesign systems, not people, and also to acknowledge that every system is designed perfectly to get the outcomes that it gets. Yeah, it's a good point. It's, it's rare that we get it. We, we're often having to renovate rather than detonate and rebuild and often it's harder. I mean, you look at this from so many different angles and it's it's much harder to break the shackles of all of the subconscious influences that an environment is having on us without starting with a blank slate. It's, sometimes it's easy to kind of build and practice and do iterative design to get to that right solution, but most of the time we're not in that sort of situation. And I think there is not many buildings or you know I don't I don't see a lot of user-centered design in architecture a lot of the time it's it's all about the aesthetics and not so much about actually how people are physically using spaces and I think that's a real shame and an opportunity particularly in in healthcare that we can't underestimate the impact of the layout of a of a building on safety all right so I have found this completely fascinating but we've used lots of big words maybe lots of words that are quite foreign to some of our listeners. So I'm going to attempt to really strip this back and and find a way to summarize what we've talked about today, because I think it's so important. But if I get it wrong, by all means, please jump in. So human factors is the science of people at work. And it's about looking at the who, what, how, and where. And the who being the people, the what, being the task, procedure, or process, the how is the tools, and the where is the environment. And when I think about what you've taught us today, it's that so often at work, we just go about doing what we do in a way that is completely unconscious to us. So if I was organizing my day as a social worker, I had a very structured way of doing that. I was meticulous, but I very rarely stopped to be able to think about that to share with students. You know, it's one thing to have this implicit knowledge that happens naturally. It's another thing to actually stop and bring to the consciousness and to look around, around the other factors, not just the people, but the what, the how, the where. Um, That is really what human factors is all about. Which leads us beautifully to your number two, why human factors is a terrible name for really what it describes doing because it leaves the whole, I guess, construct that it's about humans and people. And that is just really one element to human factors. We have to look at the system. We have to look at our tools. We have to look at our policies, procedures, guidelines. We have to look at our environment and how that might change from day to night to morning to when we're fatigued. All of these things wrapped up together go to describe this complex dynamic network of interactions between all all the moving parts. And so when we call it human factors, we keep putting people or humans in the center of it. And this is one of the problems with why when we're trying to unpack why something has gone wrong, just looking at people or, or having a change of policy or having education. I think you said, you know, it's really the weakest recommendations we can make. We've got to pull right back and say, what was happening 
around the people at the time? What was the context? Did they have the right tools? What in the environment kind of shaped them down a pathway? And so human factors is probably, it, it's misleading and we always need to remember the other elements. Number three was expect the unexpected and dealing with variability. And I guess what's really struck me is, you know, often we talk about aviation and its comparability to health. And actually, there's so much more variability in health every single day. And so what you were kind of saying is, yes, automation or standardization or having policies, of course, it is important. But we cannot believe that we work in a fail-safe environment. You know, that at any given time, for any one of those elements, including humans, but all the other factors that are a path, we could end up needing to dramatically change the way that we're doing something. We may need to be creative. We may need to um, work around. And I guess, you know, it's this work as imagined, work versus work as it is actually done. And this can be in a small way, like we've got a grumpy consultant and when they come on the ward, we do ward rounds differently just for that person, or it can be something far more complex. But what we have to expect is that the unexpected is our everyday and human factors helps us unpack that. All right, number four, why humans are our greatest asset in imperfect systems. So once we kind of get our heads around that, that actually our creativity, our ability to stand back and think this isn't working um, is probably one of the safest as well as one of the greatest assets we can have. And we talked a lot about um, the fact that clinicians often have um, what they call intuition. But what human factors encourages us to do is to think about this in terms of implicit knowledge, which means knowledge that sits within us. And it's based on experience, research, observation, um, and that we're perhaps not really great sometimes at being able to form language or uh, conceptualize that for others. But I think the main point from this is that our implicit knowledge is real knowledge and it has come from facts. And we talked about something that's very passionate for me and for Jesse, and that's like, we just don't debrief enough. We don't unpack enough. And we tend to only do that when there's been something disastrous, whereas in actual fact, we should be doing it around the mundane and also around the excellent, particularly when something has gone really well, despite all of the barriers, challenges, variability that were thrown at us, so that we can lay that information and knowledge down and we can replicate it in the future. All right. And lastly, we talked number five on how to use human factors principles to improve our work areas. And this is really about us unpacking our conscious competence, what we actually know how to do and we don't know why. And you said in all the research you've done, having psychological flexibility, which has actually been able to think outside the box come up with something, a new strategy, a tool on the spot is one of the greatest skills that we have. So if I am a nurse and I'm working on the ward, the who is, you know, who are the people we need to do the job well? Who is it that is actually involved in this process? And 
Training is only a part or a component of that. The what is the task, the procedure um, of what we're actually trying to achieve. The how is the devices, the instruments, the tools and the equipment. So do we have what we need or, you know, is what they're supplying us making our job more challenging? And the where is the environment and understanding how all of those elements come together is how we get to improve our own work areas and continue to improve because we shouldn't be at a point where we think this is it, this is as excellent or as wonderful as we can get. There are always elements or always new tools or always new thinking that we can bring into our work environment to make our patients safer, but also our own jobs so much more enjoyable and fulfilling. Mia, that has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today on Five Things. Thank you so much for having me. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at LizCrow2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things.